Hello everyone, welcome back to the Knowledge Group podcast, where we're discussing what our speakers are looking to cover at upcoming events. This event, we're going to be looking at lost profits and damages calculation, a comprehensive guide in 2019. All the information will be found in the description box down below. It's going to go live January 29th between 12 and 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we're going to hear from Stanley P. Stevenson, PhD, a managing principal, and Gauri Prakash Kanjals, PhD, a principal, both at Litigation Economics, LLC. Jeffrey A. Steck, PhD, will be next. He's a managing director at the Berkeley Research Group. And Russell W. Mangum III, PhD, is a senior vice president at Nathan Associates Incorporated. Timothy J. Miller will be heading up the panel as well. He's a partner at Novak and Macy LLP. Let's turn things over to our speakers now. But before I do, I'd like to let you know of the code PODCAST25 in the description box down below, getting you 25% off your first webcast registration. Additional information about our panel will be featured in the description box, and let's hear from them. Uh, Good morning. My name is Stan Stevenson. I am managing principal of an economic consulting firm. We specialize in complex litigation involving loss of earnings or uh, commercial damages, earnings being personal more Mm -hmm. or less, and the uh, commercial recovery and loss business value or lost profits. We've been in existence since 2003, and we've done about, uh, I myself, about 450 uh, engagements, with most of them more recently being in the commercial lines, trade secrets, patent valuations, uh, and things of that nature, although originally we were doing personal injury loss. Uh, Gowry is uh, Ken Jones, works for the, we both have PhDs in economics, mine from Indiana, hers is from Northwestern, and um, we uh, are often asked to, to get involved by um, in civil and state uh, civil litigation, state and federal courts. And we're both on the LES Evaluation Standards Committee for Patent Valuation, and we've published articles and books uh, in in related fields. So that I'm going to turn it over to Gallery, and then uh, she'll turn it back to me for we'll go through our present. She's at, she's going to kick off the overview of our presentation as well. Gallery. Thank you, Stan. As Stan said, my name is Gauri Prakash Kanjos, and I'm a principal at Litigation Economics. I am an economist by training and have been in the field of uh, patent damage estimation and other intellectual property damage estimation for about 20 years now. I also do IP valuation and licensing. The first part of the presentation is about giving an overview of damage remedies available in IP cases generally and with a focus on patent damages. So uh, intellectual property infringement damages is a vast topic uh, covering remedies for uh, patents, trademark, trade secret, copyrights, and others. There are some overlaps and, uh, and some uh, peculiarities to each type of intellectual property damages. So the damages for the patents flow from Title 35, Section 284 of the U.S. Code. And it is important to note that these damages provide for any harm suffered by the patent holder, including lost profits. So they are compensatory in nature. And uh, they also provide for reasonable royalty as a floor to the damages. So 
unlike some in other intellectual property patents, do have a floor uh, in their damage estimation. Uh, now, design patents are a little bit different. They allow for disgorgement of unjust enrichment, or actually the profits that were made by the alleged infringer. The trademark damages flow from Title 13 of the United States Code, Section 1117, and they allow for similar type of damages. They allow for defendant's profit, any damages sustained by the plaintiff, and the cost of action. Similarly, copyright damages allow for copyright owner's actual damages, any additional, additional profits, so the word additional is important, no double counting, any additional profits of the infringer, and statutory damages. Um, just to expand a little bit on this, the lost profits can arise from many different situations, and Stan will go more into detail of this. But you can have lost profits that include price erosion, future price erosion. You could have start, head start damages. So I am now going to turn it over to Stan to talk about lost profits remedies. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you, Gary. As, as Gary mentioned, our primary focus today uh, is on lost profits, less so on the um, uh, others are talking about lost uh, other types of remedies. Lost profits is a, uh, it's not a cause of action. It's a remedy intended from various causes of action, one of many uh, damages remedies. But um, in terms of the uh, what's available under lost profits, we distinguish between, as Gary was saying, prop, patent uh, IP infringements, primarily the, uh, she'll talk about the patent factors uh, case uh, involving the, that name. Non-patents, we refer to trademark, trade dress, copyright, trade secrets. And the um, common element on these is what would have happened but for the infringement. In other words, causation. And that comes up as a, an essential argument. Again, it's going to come into a subsequent presentation. But bears repeating here, but for the wrong, uh, there, there would have been a, a no harm at all, or the harm was foreseeable. In a patent case, we have four factors set forth in the in the Panduit case. This is the most common way of establishing uh, uh, causation, and Gallery would talk about that in particular. The uh, other cases. Uh, uh, similar in nature, but the, the uh, causation is an essential element not only in, in IP infringement cases, but also in any lost profits case. So I'm going to turn it over to Gowry for um, talking about market analysis and Pandora factors in detail. Thank you, Stan. So in order to establish lost profit damages in a patent infringement case, one of the important citation that uh, experts look to to prove that the patent holder lost profits is Panduit factors. It's Patent Corp versus Talon Brothers. Um, and the case lays out a four-factor test in order to claim lost profits in a patent infringement matter. Uh, the, uh, the factors are demand, existed for the infringed product. This factor basically looks at uh, 
whether the patent owner uh, lost sales uh, because of the patented feature. Was there a demand for the patented feature by the consumers? The second factor looks at acceptable non-infringing substitutes that were available in the market. And essentially what you're trying to establish here is it's, it's easiest if you can say it's a two-player market. If the infringer was not there, there are no acceptable, acceptable to the consumer, um, non-infringing substitutes. But in a, in a market where there are other substitutes, acceptable to the consumer, you can still get lost profits based on the but-for market share. So you look at what your market share would have been if there was no infringer in the market, and you can claim profits, profits associated with those lost sales as damages. Then the third factor that you have to establish is that the patent owner actually had the manufacturing and marketing capacity to make these additional sales. And uh, lastly, we need to establish that lost profits can be estimated in a non-speculative, reasonable manner. Uh, market analysis, of course, is a big part of it because we are looking at competition. We're trying to see what other products compete with this product, how much of a substitute they are, uh, do they provide the same utility to the consumer as the patented feature, and so on. And uh, our last point relates to uh, reasonable royalty and discouragement of unjust enrichment, and Stan will talk about that. The uh, focus here is on uh, IP infringement and, in particular, lost profits. But we can't forget that uh, reasonable royalty is a floor not only in uh, patent cases, but it tends to be a floor in what we call non-patent cases, trade bargains copyright, trade secret, they use very similar methodologies in establishing a, a reasonable royalty rate as an alternative. Uh, did that recently in a trade secrets case, for example. Uh, disgorgement of unjust enrichment, generally speaking, the, uh, the plaintiff says they've lost sales or revenue. And uh, of course, as Gauri said, that could also involve uh, lots of costs and, and development costs in particular. But the uh, disgorgement is uh, generally, the, the important thing is not the double count. Uh, the, the infringer should not make money out of infringing, but at the same time, they should not be penalized for, for their wrongdoing uh, excessively. And that's it, Randy. Thank you. My name is Russell Mangum, and I'm a senior vice president at Nathan Associates, a uh, national economic consulting firm. Um, my practice focuses on intellectual property and antitrust and commercial damages, complex commercial cases, focusing on, on the damages aspect in those three areas. What I want to talk about uh, in my session is really what areas, regarding the, 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 the remedy of lost profits, when are the methods and the concepts for lost profits the same if we're thinking about commercial damages and intellectual property damages, and, and when are they different? And I wanted to touch on kind of five, five different areas, at least things I think are important to the topic of damages and a damages expert. One element has to do with competition. Uh, there's many causes of, of um, at least alleged wrongdoing types, 
in commercial damages, which could lead to lost to lost profits claims. You may have a breach of a contract, maybe some business interruption or interference. But in an IP world, usually, if you have a lost profits claim, it's because you believe that the plaintiff and defendant are competitors. Something the defendant has done has taken away sales from the plaintiff. And that's an element of lost profits to keep in mind because you're going to want to make sure that your expert is, is dealing with the evaluation of competition. Where is competition? Who else is competing? I'm going to touch on that a little bit. I'm also going to touch on the difference between what limits from contracts could mean for damages compared to IP infringement. If you have a contract that says you can't do something, that's different from a situation where maybe because of intellectual property rights, you can't do something a certain way. So a contract might preclude you, from, for example, from competing in a regional type of business. Maybe you sold a business and you've got a non-compete contract, right? But in an infringement case, the idea would be, well, you can compete using a patent you haven't got permission for or using a trademark. This is important because when thinking about damages, you have to consider, well, what other way could the defendant have competed in that marketplace, right? That's different from simply saying there's a contract you can't compete. So I'll talk a little bit about that. I also want to talk about forward-looking damages, forward-looking lost profits. There, there are times when that's applicable and appropriate in, in, a, in a commercial damages case. It might be because of an interruption or a breach or something that the harm would go on for a long period of time. But in an intellectual property case, it's usually focusing on some type of infringement or unauthorized use. And if at trial the plaintiff is successful and the judge gives an injunction where you have to, the defendant needs to stop using that intellectual property, there's a question about whether or not lost profits would continue for very long, if at all, after that injunction. So I'll talk a little bit about that. I also want to talk about the concept of convoyed sales or related sales in, in commercial damages cases. If there's um, maybe a main type of product that was affected by the alleged wrongdoing, there might be other products or services as well that the plaintiff was going to provide. Um, this is clearly also available in intellectual property damages. I think in intellectual property damages, specifically patents, there's an explicit acknowledgement of something called convoyed sales, that those are allowed as far as lost profits. However, there's also some fairly severe restrictions. Convoyed sales in patent cases have to be systematically linked. They can't, have, they can't be subject to independent demand. So while there's some clarity that you get these damages, there's also restrictions on what type of lost profits. So I'll talk a little bit about that. And finally, I want to talk about the concept of how there's different uh, burdens if you've got a lost profits claim in intellectual property cases versus commercial damages to some extent. Um, as a general rule, when you're a plaintiff and you're claiming lost profits, you have the burden. You have the burden to bring forth the evidence to establish that. But one element I'm going to talk about is the question of causality and how you identify the causality. That is the connection between the alleged wrongdoing and the damages you're claiming. And one thing we have is in, in patent damages, one type of IP, in patent damages, we have a case called the Panduit case that says if you meet certain factors, it's assumed the plaintiff has met the causality burden, and then it shifts to the defendant. So we have that, that benefit of not having to, to, to prove the causality as, as deeply, at least, because we have this guidance from the four factors of Panduit. Let me contrast that with other IP cases like trademark infringement or false advertising. It's more difficult to think about causality because you may have a trademark that's been used without permission, but how do you really know the customers cared about that trademark? Or how do you really know that that meant that because of the trademark use, 
by the defendant, that generated more sales, so it's a little bit more difficult. Anyway, I'll stop there, but these are the general topics I'm going to talk about uh, in the session later in January this, uh, this year, 2019. This is Tim Miller. I'm a partner with the Chicago law firm of Novak and Macy. We're a commercial litigation boutique. All we do is practice in the areas of, of commercial litigation. And largely what I intend to, to talk about is you know, whether or not the people who talked ahead of me are going to be allowed to testify by a federal judge. And that's going to be a sort of a matter of going into the, the history of the standards uh, by which uh, experts are analyzed by a court as it's fulfilling its gatekeeping function. So we'll look at the Dober case, which is really the first Supreme Court case that set guidelines for determining when an expert would be allowed to testify. And Dobera focused on things like whether the theories and techniques that the experts are using have been tested, whether they're subject to peer review, whether there's any sort of known error rate, whether there's professional standards, you know, and whether they're widely accepted in the field. And that was a scientific expert and, and of more relevance that we're talking about today in terms of lost profits in Kumho Tire, the Supreme Court basically said that the Dober idea applies to all experts. And you have to, the trial court has to evaluate whether or not the testimony being, that the expert is proposing to give is, is basically reliable. And the, the courts, however, don't, don't really have a specific list of factors that they would rely on to test the reliability, but, but the court is required to evaluate it. And so, while there's a variety of methodologies that are accepted, you have to look at, you know, one of the, there's a couple of questions that typically come up. One is, you know, whether or not the expert has relied on appropriate or accurate data. And that's an interesting area because there's some dispute among the courts about how important that is for their analysis. Some courts explicitly say that the data the expert relies on has to be, at least meet a minimal standard of reliability and other courts say, no, you know, we're not going to look at that. We're going to leave that to the cross-examination process. Similarly, you have the issue of whether or not the expert is using a generally accepted set of principles. You know, are they following uh, uh, an analysis that's, that's been blessed by some sort of professional standard or not? And, you know, does that matter? And, and I also plan to talk about, you know, does it, is it appropriate or acceptable to rely on information that's given to you by the client or do you need to have, you know, sort of independently vetted data? There are all sorts of questions that come up when courts are looking at experts and frankly there, there are issues that uh, courts have come up with a variety of different answers. But we can have some interesting uh, discussion about the issues.